Find other great podcasts like this one at podmoth.network. Memento Mori, an object serving as a warning or reminder of death. Death is inevitable, but how it happens can be tragically unfair. It can be dark, cruel, hateful, or just plain bizarre. I'm Megan, and I'll be your guide through these stories of chaos and devastation. Come listen as we dive into all types of true crime cases and learn about the evil that lurks among us as well as the victims that deserved none of it. You can go to mementomoripod.com for more information. Monsters are real, and they look like people. Hello, dear listeners, and welcome back to another episode of the Identity Podcast on the Podmoth Media Network, your foray into the weird, wonky, and sometimes downright spooky. This week, I introduce you to the strange world of early medicinal cures, some more odd than others, and enlighten you with the details of a strange arrangement that actually came to benefit women all over the world. Have you ever been chopping vegetables and cut yourself? Likely you have, but you just rubbed some animal dung into the cut and kept chopping, right? Or maybe you cleaned the cut with soap and water and slathered on some antibiotic ointment and a band-aid. Likely you did the latter, but the former was practiced in ancient Egypt. Ancient Egyptians had their medical systems on lock. They were incredibly well organized, and even had different doctors that specialized in different ailments. If you arrived at the doctor with a deep cut, however, you'd likely be treated with lizard blood, mouse entrails, and moldy bread all rubbed into the wound. I'm amazed that many of those treated didn't wind up with tetanus. Oh wait, they did! According to 1500 BC's Ebers Papyrus, donkey, dog, gazelle, and fly dung were hailed for their healing powers. Yeah, I mean, they did often lead to other infections, But research has shown that microflora found in some types of animal excrement actually contains some antibiotic qualities. In Iran, healers would use donkey dung as a way to cure oral ulcers, bronchitis, vaginal infections, and many more ailments with few side effects. The dung was burned, and the afflicted individual would inhale the smoke. This practice has been seen in over 50 countries. Now, at this point, you may be asking me how anybody would manage to collect fly dung. My guess is with a very tiny pooper scooper. Afflictions like stomach ulcers, persistent headaches, and muscle cramps can either be easily cured or managed these days. 
They were easily, quote-unquote, cured in Roman times as well. Elixirs of human blood, bone, and flesh were prescribed. This method of treatment, known as corpse medicine, for obvious reasons, was common practice for hundreds of years. The blood of fallen gladiators was said to cure epilepsy. From History.com, quote, The cannibalistic medicines were thought to have magical properties. By consuming the remains of a deceased person, the patient also ingested part of their spirit, leading to increased vitality and well-being. The type of cure prescribed usually corresponded to the type of ailment. Skull was used for migraines and human fat for muscle aches. But getting fresh stock could be a gruesome process. In some cases, the sickly would even attend executions in the hope of getting a cheap cup of the freshly killed person's blood. End quote. Ancient Babylonians invented tons of stuff. Trigonometry, methods of timekeeping that we still use today, a primitive sailboat, and let's not forget the wheel. They also had a cure for tooth grinding while you were asleep. I know I'm excited to find a cure for this one. Well, I guess I'm not that excited. If you own a human skull, though, the ancient Babylonians say you're halfway to a cure. During this point in time, it was thought that most afflictions were a punishment by the gods or the result of demonic forces, doctors being more like priests or exorcists than modern doctors, and magic was a common component when it came to cures. If you're grinding your teeth, it must mean that a deceased relative is trying to get in contact. A reasonable assumption. Ancient necromantic texts stated that the cure for this was to sleep by a human skull for a period of one week. Now, this wouldn't be so terrible, I suppose, but the added element of having to kiss or lick the skull seven times every night makes for a strange ritual indeed, but no stranger than a wandering womb. The word hysterectomy comes from the Greek word hystera, meaning womb, and hysteria was a catch-all medical diagnosis that was thrown around willy-nilly when it came to women. From uselessetymology.com, Quote, the notion of hysteria as the cause of pretty much anything that could ever be wrong with a woman is attributed to the Hippocratic-era Greek medical teachings about the oddly disturbing theory of the wandering womb, which suggested that many diseases women suffered from were caused by the uterus moving around of its own accord. And I'm not talking about a little bit of shifting here. Just to illustrate how far-fetched this concept seems today, here's a description of the wandering womb theory by the 2nd century physician Eretaeus. In the middle of the flanks of women lies the womb, a female viscous closely resembling an animal. For it is moved of itself hither or thither in the flanks, also upwards in direct line and below the cartilage of the thorax, and also obliquely to the right or the left, either to the liver or the spleen, and it likewise is subject to prolapsus downward, and in a word, it is altogether erratic. It delights also in fragrant smells, and advances towards them, and it has an aversion to fetid smells, and flees from them. And on the whole, the womb is like an animal within an animal. Thanks, Eretaeus. I hate it. Ancient women were counseled to have as many children as they could and marry as young as possible because the alternative was a list of cures for a uterus on the move. 
massages to force it back in place. Therapeutic baths and fumigations of the head with sulfur and pitch were the go-to. Logic being that the uterus would run away from the bad smells. And if pleasant lotions were rubbed on the inside of the thighs, the uterus would drift back into place. From here, let's talk about that strange arrangement that I mentioned earlier. In the 1940s, a scientist named Piero Donini worked for a pharma company called Serrano. And he was the first to extract and purify FSH and LH, the hormones that stimulate ovulation in women's urine. After menopause, ovaries stop producing aches, and FSH and LH shoot up as the body tries to stimulate their production. Donini called the new substance pergonal, an Italian word meaning from the gonads, and he thought it would be used to treat infertility. Unfortunately, the discovery wasn't as impressive as Donini hoped. A decade later, Bruno Lumenfeld, a medical student in Geneva, whose research dealt with the use of human hormones to stimulate pregnancy, contacted Serono execs regarding the creation of enough pergonal to run a clinical trial. Unfortunately, the drug would require thousands of gallons of urine from menopausal women. He lobbied for the drug, but he was shut down. Enter Julio Pacelli, Italian aristocrat and nephew of Pope Pius XII. Pacelli was a Serono board member and he brought Lunenfeld back to the board. With Pacelli's help, Lunenfeld's request was granted. Pacelli said to the board, My uncle, Pope Pius, has decided to help us and to ask the nuns in the old age home to collect urine daily for a sacred cause. Oh, to have been a fly on the wall for that conversation. Lucky, I guess, that the Vatican happened to own 25% of a pharmaceutical company. It took 10 nuns 10 days to produce enough urine for one treatment. Why nuns, you ask? Well, the urine from one pregnant donor would contaminate the whole batch, so they wanted to make sure that there was no chance that the donors could be pregnant. Save Immaculate Conception, I think that that was a safe bet. That's it for this week, dear listeners. Tune in next time for more tales of the creepy, weird, and paranormal. Until then, stay spooky. The Identity Podcast is brought to you by host Janine Mercer. The podcast is written and edited by Janine Mercer, unless otherwise stated, and the music is created using GarageBand. You can find The Odd Pod on Twitter and Instagram at IdentityPod. And a transcript of this episode can be found at theidentitypodcast.wordpress.com. Don't forget to share this podcast with your friends, leave a review, and subscribe so that you'll be in the know when a new episode drops.